there, there are three readings today. The first one is from Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and one common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And we're going to skip over to Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And then in Acts. Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have drank too much wine. The word of the Lord. Be to God indeed. You know, as we work through the Word of God over the year, in this church we have seasons, and we work through those seasons, and we, we zoom in on texts. We focus on certain areas, and we try to give you context, but we look at texts that are small and narrow. Today, we are zooming out. We're looking at Pentecost and its place in redemptive history. We're looking at where it fits in the life of the church. Now, 
Churches have a tendency when they talk about the Holy Spirit, because certainly the Holy Spirit is, uh, he is the, the main actor on the day of Pentecost. They have a tendency to either move to a place of fear. What will happen if the Holy Spirit, if he comes and works in this place? Or they move to a place of mysticism, where they measure their own salvation or spirituality by the charismatic works of the Holy Spirit. So what we want to do today is ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? What is Pentecost? How does it fit into God's big story? And how does our little story then fit into that story of God? So we're going to look at this in three sections, which correspond with the three texts that were read. We're going to look at the first, uh, the story of Babel, or what I'm going to call another curse on humanity. We're going to look at the uh, commissioning of Abraham, which I'm going to call a blessing to the nations. And we're going to look at Pentecost, the day of Pentecost itself, which we will call the winds of God. So let's jump in and try to make sense of these texts and, uh, and this day of Pentecost. Most of us are aware, I think, of the disunity that exists in the world. The planet itself has many wars and fractures. There are fractures within uh, different people groups, different ethnicities. And we see those divides often causing major strife within the world. And this disunity definitely has some kind, something to do, I think, with the culture and the languages which divide us. There's, uh, has anyone here had the experience of meeting someone who doesn't speak our language? And it's difficult, it's hard. It's easy to say it's too much trouble. It's hard to say what's going on. And many of you have been to a different country and had to learn another language. And the time it takes to build those bridges, to make those connections, is, is large. And it is hard. And so often it's easy for misunderstandings to occur and for things to go wrong. And what we see in this text here are three stages of where things have gone wrong and then the resultant curse of the confusion of the languages. So let's look at those sorry, two stages. And that first stage is one I would call of, or that, that divides into two pieces, is this stage of disobedience, this partial obedience that infects all of mankind. You see, what they're doing here in going out, and if we read verses, uh, uh, if we read the, the text here, um, now the whole world had one language and a common speech, verse 1. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and settled there. Now in that verse straight away, we see a group of people who are both obedient and disobedient. You go back to Genesis, at the very beginning, before the fall, and they're told, go forth, multiply, subdue the earth, spread yourself out. And they're doing that. They're doing what they're supposed to do. But then they get to a nice, comfortable, fertile place. And they think, this is good. I like this. Let's stop the spreading. Let's settle where it's comfortable and easy. So that's the first thing. There's a presumption here of God's purpose. There's a denial here of the cultural mandate. Now, it's already happened once we've had the flood, the curse in a sense of the flood. There's the curse that happened in the garden. And now there's this curse of the scattering of languages. God is doing his very best 
to send a message here to say, get on with the mission. Get on with the cultural mandate. But they presume a different purpose. They, there's a presumption here of God's purpose. There's a disobedience. They were born for adventure. They were born to subdue. They were born to go out and be ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of God throughout the world. And they settle down in the first or the second or the third comfortable place that they find. And the world is still suffering from this experience, from this decision. How often do we make choices of comfort over choices of mission? How often do we say, what works best for me, not what works best for my calling or my place in the kingdom of God? And even the great explorations of the 15th and the 16th and the 19th century, even when we did go out and explore and subdue, we tended to do it in really oppressive ways. Exploration became exploitation. There was colonialism, all of the ugly pieces of, of power. It was seen as a way of collecting wealth. We were not ambassadors of Christ. In some ways, we were creating the need for Christ. Even more pronounced, we are bringing the full weight of oppression to people who, who, who needed some sort of relief from that. And then the second piece here, so that's verses 1 and 2. Then we look at verses 3 and 4. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. They were developing their culture. They were evolving in the culture. They were making progress, which is good. They were using their ingenuity and their creativity. Nothing wrong with that. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven so that we, we make, make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered all over the face of the whole earth. They get it. They know what the command is. Go, do that. Be obedient to God's purpose. And they say, no, let's reject God's purpose. Let's, let's presume our own purpose, comfort, security, the things that work for us. And let's assume God's role. Let's make a tower that glorifies us instead of God. Let's stand. Let's go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God in a sense. Let's do it our way rather than his way. Now, the destruction of the cities is good. The use of artistic genius in our person kind is really us reflecting the Imago Dei. That's what we should be doing. We are culture makers. We are culture shapers. What's not good is the problem that they are doing it to their own glory. They're making a monument to themselves, saying, we're no longer on mission. Certainly, we're not on God's mission. We're on our mission. And our mission is to glorify ourselves and not God himself. Now, you may or may not be familiar with the Table of Nations, a couple of chapters before, one chapter before. And in that chapter 10 of Genesis, there's a mention there of a person called Nimrod. He's described as being the world's first conqueror, in a sense. He sets up Babylon and Nineveh and many other cities, but he's basically the one who most commentators think was responsible for rallying the troops here. He was a worldly leader who said, let's build a tower here, let's do it in this new ingenious way, let's make it about us rather than about God. He had a following, 
And he's probably the source behind both the idea and the execution of the Tower of Babel. He, ele the, he had elevated himself to the role of God. And by extension, everybody that followed him, that followed those earthly power structures because they thought it would bring them glory or bring them comfort, elevated someone other than God into that role. So the presumption of God's purpose, the rejection of mission, and the assumption of God's role are what we see in this story on the Tower of Babel. And the result of that, we see in verses 5 to 9. And it's a judgment. It, it, but it's actually also a restoration to the redemptive history plot that should have been in place. So let me read it. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, and nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel or Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, God comes and have, has a look. He confuses his languages and he scatters them abroad. He gets them back on mission. Whether they want to be on mission or not, God scatters them and gets them, in a sense, back on mission. Go, subdue the earth. Now, this is God not coming down and saying, man, what a tower. I wish I could build a tower like that. And it's not that he's resenting the ingenuity. And it's not God coming down and saying, Nimrod, wow, that's a powerful dude. I wish I was as powerful as Nimrod. It's not God sitting there being threatened by their capacity or their power. What he's doing here is saying, get rid of that idol. Get rid of that distraction. He is repeating Eden. He's repeating the flood. There's a dissatisfaction here with being, being human. Of want and a desire to want to be God. And God comes down and says, it's not going to work. It's not going to satisfy you. You are creature, I am creator. Let's get the roles right. Do not presume my purpose and do not presume my role in your life. Now, so in this text, we see an appalling pride of personhood, both presumption and assumption. Presumption of God's purpose and assumption of God's role. We see an unwillingness to find identity in worship and obedience of God, and instead we look for anything we can, even this little guy Nimrod, or this idea of a tower, or comfort, whatever it is that's getting in the way. And biblically, throughout history and throughout the rest of the texts of the Bible, Babylon is a symbol of proud self-reliance. It stands in opposition to the idea of submission and obedience and dependence on God. And dependence and submission, <coughs> these are the marks of Christian maturity. And they are going to happen because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the work of God, in a sense, whether we like it or not. And I, I wonder why so many times it happens to us through kicking and screaming, rather than us embracing the mission and embracing the call, accepting God's purpose and accepting God's role in our lives. So they're scattered again in judgment. What they should have done, they're being forced to do. But instead of it being a blessing, it's a curse. 
So the story of redemption of history is still being written by God and not personhood, but it's hard now. It's difficult and it's chaotic. So that's the Tower of Babel. Let's look at Abraham, a blessing to the nations. So we get to this point, it's the next, the next chapter in the book of Genesis, the world's in trouble. There's just been, quite honestly, too many failed coups. We tried it in the garden and it didn't work. Now we're trying it in Babel and it's not working. God is, is basically saying, whether you like it or not, I'm king. And if you try to set yourself up as king, it's not going to work. I am creator and I am sustainer. There's a reality to that, which you just can't change by deciding that you don't like it. So now we add, we add to the fractured humanity, the fractured work, the fractured family relationships, the fractured friendship, the fractured environment that comes from the fall in the garden. <coughs> and we now... Because we play God, we now have languages in chaos and humanity in confusion. What a mess. The outworking and the result of the curse of sin and pride and self-reliance. But God has not stopped writing the story of redemptive history. And he will unravel the chaos of Babel. And he's going to return this curse to a blessing. And in fact, he does that almost immediately through Abraham. Note in uh, verse 2 that the blessing put on Abraham is for Abraham, but it's not restricted to him. Let me read it to you. Okay, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And then we go right down to the end of verse 3. And the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, you might think, knowing what we do about world history, that Abraham pretty much had a sweet deal here. That he just said, oh, this is pretty easy. The God of the universe is going to make this happen for me. But the reality is it wasn't that easy, right? Verse 2a, I will make your name great. He has to trust that in obedience. He has to, he's dependent on God here. You see, Abraham is 74. Sarah is childless. She's barren. The idea that there's going to be a nation that comes out of him, a great nation, it makes no sense. You will be a people. There's no land here. Abraham has nothing. He has a barren wife, no children, no land. And this line here, which is, uh, I will bless those that bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. We sometimes read that without fully understanding what it's about. But what it's really saying is, where you're going is dangerous. It's hard. There's risk there. It's life-threatening. And I will protect you. That's what he's saying. Those who come alongside you, I will come alongside them. Those who come against you, I will come against them. Whatever friend or foe you have, I will be the great friend, and I will be the great foe to them. So where he's going is dangerous. He has a barren wife. He's 76 years old. He has no land. And God comes and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's crazy. And he sits there, and, and God, of course, says, go. So it's not looking good for Abraham. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but he says, okay, I will go. I will, in obedience and independence, I will go. And we are reminded by that going that Abraham realized, at least at this moment, because he certainly doesn't get it perfectly, 
that it, he recognizes as God that writes redemptive history and not him. And in verse 3, where it says, all the people and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you, that through you means the children of Abraham, that nation that's created. And that nation is that now a faith nation. So it is not just literal descendants of Abraham, but it's those of us who have been grafted in. And so suddenly we see, in case you didn't get it already, that the cultural mandate is still in effect. We're on mission. We're supposed to be on mission. Here, a new mission, be a blessing to the nations. We're on mission. The same mission that was given to Abraham is given to us. We're supposed to be on mission. We're also blessed to be a blessing. And that's how God writes us into his story of redemptive history. Now, let me ask you this question. Genesis 11. Nimrod built Babylon up to God for his glory, based on pride and self-reliance. Genesis 12. Abraham migrates into Canaan. And the capital city of Canaan becomes Jerusalem. And he does that to God's glory through dependence and submission. And of course, this is a foreshadowing of Revelation, right? In Revelation, what happens? Jerusalem comes down. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel goes up. There's supposed to be a direct con uh, mental picture here of the coming down of Jerusalem in Re Revelation 7, which stands in opposition to the building of the Tower of Babel. To God's glory through dependence and submission in Christ. Of course, the reference here to, to Jerusalem and to being in the land is a reference to the promised land. But there's a bigger picture going on here, the picture of all redemptive history where Jerusalem comes down and the people march in, the undoing of the curse, and the glory to God through dependence and submission, not of Abraham in that case, but of Christ. Now, you might be tempted to ask at this point, does submission and dependence mean losing myself? Do I lose my identity in this? So let me ask you this question. How many of you have heard of Nimrod before today? Some of you may have. Yeah, a couple of you have. I don't really think he's got the same name recognition in the history books as Abraham, right? Now the point here is not that you'll be famous if you become a Christian. But what the point here is that your purpose will be fulfilled if you live faithfully and obediently to Christ. You will experience completeness. There'll be a sense in which you're satiated and you live and you will experience the fullness of who you are. So in fact, our identity is not suppressed by having a relationship with Christ. It's actually fulfilled. It's experienced in all its fullness. We become everything we are created to be as we move into maturity in dependence and submission. Okay, so that is the blessing to the nations. We've looked at the, the, another curse. Now we've looked at the blessing to the nations of Abraham. Let's go to Pentecost. The winds of God. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Now, again, what do we see in verse 1 to 4 of that text? Which way is the communication? And it's very intentional again in this text in Pentecost. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing and violent wind. Did it get built up from earth towards God to create the glory of man? No, it came down from heaven. This is the antithesis of the Babel story, right? And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. It's the birth of the church. It's the restoration of people from scattered nations. It's the blessing, the beginning of the blessing that was given to Abraham, fulfilled through Christ, executed through the work of the Holy Spirit, fully realized when the Jerusalem of heaven comes down in Revelation and we walk into the city. Now, the coming of the Holy Spirit here is like wind and fire and it comes in power. And it's difficult to understand the Holy Spirit and his working. There's a strange anonymity about him, except on particular occasions. And we see those particular occasions scattered through our history and certain parts of our world. And we see that scattered throughout biblical history in certain times and places. The Holy Spirit, he works with amazing power and amazing charismatic movement. And in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the day that the curse of Babylon was, Babel was reversed, we see that the Holy Spirit leads to a praising of mighty works, not of person kind, but a praising of the mighty works of God. And we start to see here in the next few chapters or pericopes in the book of Acts what the work of the Holy Spirit is within the church. You see, when they receive the Holy Spirit, first of all, they become Jesus conscious. What is the first thing that Peter does? He gets up and he preaches a sermon and it's all about Jesus. It's all about who Jesus was and what Jesus has done. They become Jesus conscious. Then what happens? All the disciples get together and they start asking the question, what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be back on mission? What does it mean to live out our lives faithfully? They become Jesus-oriented. Then the next thing that happens is that Peter and John walking into the temple, they see a crippled man and they heal him. And do they say, in my power, in my way, as a great apostle, as a man vested with great authority and power, I tell you to walk, not at all. In fact, not only do they do it in the name of Christ, in the power of God, in the dependency of the work of the Holy Spirit through them, Peter then stands up if there's any doubt and makes a whole sermon out of it and says, do you think I did this? No, this is the work of Christ. There's a whole sermon on dependency, on this miracle being the work of Christ. So we have the Holy Spirit creates Jesus conscious church. It creates a Jesus oriented church. It creates a Jesus dependent. He creates a Jesus dependent church. And then we see what happens when Peter and John get into trouble. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're not super happy about the fact that this healing took place. So they arrest them. And they basically say, well, you know what? Our authority is not to you. Our authority is to Jesus Christ. We will be obedient to him. We will submit to him first. That is our highest and most important calling. That's where our mission is. So we become Jesus conscious. We become Jesus oriented. We become Jesus dependent. And we become Jesus obedient. That is the real work of the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit matures. He makes us dependent and obedient. And the story of redemptive history then is not written by our religiosity, but by the Holy Spirit. It is written by God, not by person kind. But obedience to what? And this is really important. Don't fall for the North American evangelical church mistake of making obedience about morality. Obedience is about mission. Certainly missions done morally. Certainly missions done with kingdom values. But being morally good is not the same thing as being obedient. So I'm going to say that again because I want you to hear it. Obedience is about mission. The story of redemptive history is being written by God, not by us. We are called into it. We respond in a Holy Spirit-led obedience to it. Jesus' great commission begins with all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he gives us the same command that he gave Abraham, go. Obedience is about mission. It is not about morality. We are called to be part of this mission. We are called to use our ingenuity, our creativity, and our energy for it. And I'm going to tell you that there's a, a test. Because you see, the going doesn't mean necessarily that you have to go to Russia or the Caucasus, to Afghanistan or Iran, to Kenya. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that everything you do has to pass the Holy Spirit test. Are you doing it out of hubris or humility? Are you doing it out of dependence or self-reliance? And to whose glory are you doing it? So let me ask you those three questions again. Because you know they apply just as much to the pastor as they do to the missionary, as they do to the school teacher, as they do to the counselor, as they do to the financier. Holy Spirit test. Are you doing it in hubris or humility, independence or self-reliance? And to whose glory are you doing it? Are you even asking the question, where's my role in the mission? What are you calling me to? How have you created me to fit into this redemptive story? Or are you asking the question, hmm, nice plane, comfortable. I should build a tower here. The cultural mandate is still in effect. Why you live, work, and play matters. Apply it all to the Holy Spirit test. How you live, work, and play matters. Apply it all to the Holy Spirit test. Abraham's call to be a blessing to the nation is still in effect. It's still mission. We're on mission. And there are examples of that which are certainly global. We have our own missionaries we can look to. Andre in the Caucasus and Ukraine. Robin Iris doing translation work and working in Afghanistan. Brad's work for Frontier Fellowship. Jaram in Kenya. And today, well, this week, in fact, I was given a really interesting article which I actually pinned up on the backboard, blackboard there. Iranian Christians displaced from Iran, setting up a church in Turkey. When there was an earthquake, refugees from Afghanistan were part of the, uh, the, the, those 
who suffered because of that earthquake, and Iranians went in because the Turkish government wouldn't, said, what, what do you need? We need blankets. We need somewhere to live. They took him out of there, they put him in their Sunday school, they prayed for them, and in fact, they prayed for one of the children who was still in the rubble to be found, and he was, and those 15 Afghanis became Christians. In fact, they were the first ones in the church the following Sunday. They went. Those Iranian Christians who didn't have much, they went. They heard the mission, go. Okay, so concluding. I hope you're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I'm failing this Holy Spirit test. I hope you're feeling that because it's probably true. In fact, I'm not even going to say probably. It's true of all of us. So missionaries and pastors, church leaders, elders, deacons, they're more holy, right? Because they do God's work, right? No. Okay, that's theological nonsense. Complete and utter theological nonsense. But I'd like to humor that idea because somehow our culture still holds to it. And I just want to tell you that I know a lot of missionaries. I know quite a few pastors, a lot of elders and deacons. And in fact, I do not know a missionary or a pastor or a church leader without some sort of self-righteousness or God doubt or spiritual anxiety that they're working through. People on mission are not perfect and they're not perfected first. They're as broken as people not on mission. In fact, God does the healing, the Holy Spirit. He works through us as we do the mission. He matures us. He makes us dependent. He makes us obedient as we respond to his call to mission. <coughs> now, even in this church, we have four elders, three missionaries, two pastors and one deacon that I know of. And not one of them is worthy to be on mission. All of them are privileged to be on mission. And that mission, by the way, isn't really that... In fact, it's not more important than everybody else's mission. Your mission as mother and counsellor. Yours as publicist. Yours as school administrator. Are you doing them to the glory of God? Are they passing? Are they passing the Holy Spirit test? Is it hubris or is it humility? Are you doing it in dependence or self-reliance? Are you doing it to your glory or to God's glory? Now, the first step in dependence is to recognize our need to be constantly washed by the blood of Christ. We all stink of hubris and self-reliance. And yet, he loves us despite the fact that we stink. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Quite amazing. You think about how noxious we smell and yet how closely he embraces us. You have an amazing God. Now, our salvation belongs to our God and not to us. Our faith that claims this salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit and not to us. Our maturity our dependence and submission is the work of the Holy Spirit and not us. So my suggestion to you all as we work through Pentecost is to pray more, pray for more Holy Spirit work in your heart and expect the Holy Spirit, expect him to do heart renovation. Expect him to write your little story 
into his big story of redemptive history. Expect to hear the words of Jesus in your heart. Go, go, wherever that is, to the counseling office, to the parenting meeting, to Afghanistan, to the Caucasus, to that meeting with friends, to that shared uh, children's birthday party. Go! <clears throat> but not in hubris, in humility. N not in self-reliance, but in self-dependence. And to the glory of God and not to your own glory. Go in mission. Going in mission may be local and it may be restorative, like it was for those Iranians. It may be relational, like it often is for us to go. And whatever you're doing, whether you're doing local, restorative, relational work, or whether you're doing big picture, uh, overseas government work, or mission agency work, apply the Holy Spirit to everything you do. Hubris or humility, dependence or self-reliance. Whose glory are you doing to it? Engage in this battle, in your heart, in your prayer life. And this is a prayer battle. And the more competent you are, the more capable you are, the more you've been blessed with gifts, and the more you've developed those gifts and talents, the more likely you are to move away from this position of hum humble dependence. The more likely you are to move to a place of hubris and self-reliance and self-glorification. So you better be people of prayer. You better be people calling out to the Holy Spirit. You better be people that recognize your dependence on him and be leaning into him. Engage in the prayer battle of the heart in all matters. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for Pentecost. We thank you for a powerful, awesome Holy Spirit who works his ways, not always charismatically, but always in ways that write your redemptive history, that point us to Christ, that make us Jesus-conscious, Jesus-oriented, Jesus-dependent, Jesus-obedient. Father, we pray for that Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us. We pray for his work to do reconstructive surgery in our hearts. Father, we pray that we can be people who hear and go in humility, in dependence, and to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.